you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to Nehemiah chapter 4. In August we've been in a sermon series where we've been talking to parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, anyone who has children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews, anyone who works with children, boys and girls and teenagers, We're learning how we can influence their life, impact their life, not just for down here, but up there. If you missed any of the messages, they're on our website, and they should be posted very soon, and you can listen to the whole series. But today we conclude the series with a message entitled, A Battle, A Fight that we cannot lose. A battle, a fight that we cannot lose. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Now in context, we're reading about Nehemiah's commissioning to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But I believe also we're reading about how to rebuild the walls of our families and our home. Because just as Jerusalem was in disarray then, I believe many of our families or homes are in disarray now. Notice Nehemiah 4, beginning with verse 13. Therefore sit I in the lower places behind the wall, And on the higher places, I set the people according to their families. I set them together by family units. And I give to them swords and spears and bows that they may fight. And I looked up and rose up and said to the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid for this fight. Remember the Lord which is great and mighty, and fight with confidence for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your own houses. If any of you endeavor to join the Peace Corps, you are going to be given a manual. The manual gives you some insights, some tips, if you will, on the place that you'll be going. Well, if you choose to join the Peace Corps and you make your choice South America, more specifically, you make your choice the Amazon area of South America, you will find in your manual something that nobody else's manual has. It is advice. It is a tip, if you will on what to do if you are attacked by a giant anaconda. Now, if you go to Africa, you won't get that in your manual. If you go to Western Europe, you won't get that. If you go to Asia, you won't get that. If you go to Canada or Mexico, you won't get that. But if you go to South America, Amazon area, you will have an addendum in your manual that tells you what to do. 
if you come face to face with a giant anaconda. Now, some of you might be scratching your head and saying, what in the world is he talking about? A giant anaconda is a snake. In fact, it's the largest snake in the world. A full-grown male anaconda can be 35 feet in length and weigh out at about 400 pounds. The question is, if you're in the Peace Corps serving in South America in the Amazon area and you come face to face with this giant reptile, this snake, what are you going to do? Now the manual's going to tell you, first of all, what not to do. First of all, do not run. That snake can slither faster than you can run. He'll catch you. That wouldn't be good. Do not climb a tree. That snake can go up a tree faster than you can. When you get to the top, he'll be waiting on you. Don't go in the water. Because he can swim. And if you go in the water, he's going to take you out further than you want to go and keep you under longer than you want to stay under. Do not fight the snake. Don't put up your dukes. You're no Mayweather. You're no McGregor. Some of you don't know what in the world I'm talking about. Read your paper. Don't fight the anaconda. Because you'll only get him agitated. And then he'll bite you repeatedly before he swallows you whole. You say, well, pastor, what in the world are we supposed to do? <laughs> you might miss. <laughs> what the manual says, you go by the book. You lie down flat on the ground. Hands to your side, just like that, you're laying flat on the ground. The snake will sniff you. He will climb over you. He will then go to where your feet is. And he will begin to swallow you. Gulp, gulp, gulp. You stay perfectly still. You say nothing. You let him swallow you till he gets to your waist. Manuel says then, you pull out a knife. You cut his head off. And then you pull yourself out. That's what the manual says. Don't be booing me. Now I got to thinking, I just got to thinking. Maybe you're thinking. I hope you have a knife. <laughs> and I hope it's sharp. Well, if you're in the Peace Corps, you might well face an anaconda. But if you're a Christian, I can guarantee you, you're going to face a serpent. And this serpent is a mighty serpent. And he goes around looking for whom he may swallow and devour. That serpent has a name, and his name is the devil. He comes to deceive, to mislead. 
He comes to destroy and to murder you and I as individuals, but also our families and our homes. He is on the prowl, and he's coming for you. He's coming for your family. He's coming for your home. Why is he so much concerned about our family and our home? Because as I've told you over and over again, the family and the home is the foundational unit of society. God made it that way. As the home goes, so goes the church. So goes the schools. So goes the community. So goes the state. So goes the nation, and quite frankly, so goes the world. You're only as good as your families. You're only as good as your homes. In Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah has been commissioned by the king. Pay attention. Nehemiah has been, uh, has been commissioned by the king to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of the holy city. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. There's nothing but rubble and rubbish in the wall's place. The king has said, Nehemiah, I will give you the workers. I will give you the monies. I will give you the resources. I want you to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to get rid of the trash. I want you to get rid of the rubble. And I want you to rebuild the city of your God. And so the building campaign begins. But like most things, the glitter and the glamour soon wear off. And Satan begins now to plan an attack against the work of rebuilding the walls of the city. Now Satan's favorite weapon that he uses against rebuilding anything is discouragement. Discouragement. He wants us to be so discouraged that we will get frustrated, we will get aggravated, we will get tired, we'll get weary, and we will give up and quit. That's what he does. He uses discouragement. And we notice in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 4 that the first wave of discouragements he's going to use to stop the Jewish people from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem is agitators. Agitators from the outside. Notice in verse 1, it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we were trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he was angry. He did not want us to rebuild these walls. He took great indignation, and he began to mock us in preparation for attacking us. I want you to be listening. The walls are being rebuilt, and then all of a sudden this outside agitator comes, and he stirs up stuff to bring discouragement to the rebuilding work. And then in verse 10, on top of the outside agitators coming to stir things up and discourage the work, 
there's now going to be inside anxieties that build up in the people that are going to be a threat to the work. Look at verse 10. The strength of the workers, those who are doing, who are carrying the burden of this work, is in decline or decay. Why is it so? Because there's just so much rubbish. There's so much trash. It's piled so high, it takes too long. We've got to get rid of all of this, verse 10, before we can even attempt to build the walls. We don't believe we can do it. So Satan is working. The serpent is working. What is he trying to do? Discourage the work. Outside agitators. Inside anxieties. That the people will stop the work that they've been given by the king. Now we're talking about, obviously, building walls. Building walls of a city. But may I just speculate with you, may I even opinionate with you, that maybe there's more to this story, as Paul Harvey would say, that meets the eye. Maybe it's, there's also a lesson here about parents and grandparents who, are, who have been a, given a commission by a king to rebuild the walls of their families and homes. And maybe we're facing discouragement in that. Maybe some of you right here, right now, are facing outside agitators and inside anxieties, and you just really just want to pull out your hair by the roots, holler and scream, give up and go somewhere else. Maybe you're there. What are some external agitators like Sandballot was then? that bring discouragement into our families and homes. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's prescription drugs or non-prescription drugs that are abused. Maybe it's pornography and immoral sex. There's a lot of things out there to try to inch and worm their way into the home to create agitations in our families, in our parenting and grandparenting. And then we not only have these outside agitators and they will bleed us physically and financially, but we also have the inside anxieties Notice once again in verse 10 the three anxieties the people have as they're trying to build the walls and deal with these agitators from the outside. They have their own anxieties on the inside. The first is fatigue. Notice it says the strength of the bearers of the burdens is decayed. That's a fancy word for saying they're tired. Their strength is in decline. Their strength is depleted. It's tough building walls. It's tougher being parents and grandparents. So there's a fatigue factor that's sitting in. And then there's a, a frustration factor. If you notice in verse 10, they're complaining about the rubbish. Now remember, before they can build the walls, they've got to do what? 
get rid of the trash, get rid of the rubbish of the old walls. And that takes some effort. Building things are fun. Hauling off trash is not so much fun. And so there's a frustration among those building the walls. An emotional anxiety. This is too much to do. Too much to do. I'm tired of doing it. Fatigue, frustration, and then notice there's a fear. So much so that they, they say to themselves, I don't know that we can do this anymore. I don't know that we can build these walls. The king gave us the workers, but I don't know if the workers are going to work. He's given us the resources and the money, but I don't know if that's enough. I don't know if we can do it. You know, that's what Satan says to parents, does he not? We get tired and weary because we try and we try and we try and it don't seem to make any difference. And then we get frustrated because what we try and try and try doesn't seem to work. And then we get afraid. Is there any hope for our son? Is there any hope for our daughter? Is there any hope for my husband, my wife? Is there any hope for the grandchildren, the nieces, the nephews, the aunts, the uncles? Is there any hope? We just want to give up and quit. Maybe some of you are there right now. Again, as you look at me, you're saying, wow, he's looking at me. He must know. No, I don't know, but God knows, and you know. You're sitting here right now saying, that's me in a nutshell. I know the Lord Jesus has called me to build my home. I, I know He's called me to rebuild my family. I know that calling. He's given me everything I need to be able to do it successfully. But for whatever reason, outside agitators, inside anxieties, I just don't know if I can do it anymore. I am ready to quit. I'm going to be a walkout husband, a walkout wife, a walkout parents, walkout grandparents. I'm just washing my hands of this whole matter. I'm leaving. I may not physically go, but I'm checking out. I'm tired. Listen to me. Don't you do it. Don't you let this serpent swallow your family. You fight. Don't go down without a fight. Don't give up. As long as you've got breath, stand up and speak out and fight for your family. Time to fight with them is over. We now need to fight for them. And I'm going to share with you four things that all of us can do that can help us rebuild these walls. I don't know where you're at in the rebuilding. But four principles, and they're easy principles, and they're not going to take long. But I believe if they're put into place and practiced and played over and over and over again, you can make a difference. 
in your child or grandchild. Before I give them to you, I want you to think about this story. A minister's wife went to an orphanage, and she watched the boys and girls of that orphanage run up and down the basketball court playing basketball. Her eye caught one young man that sat in the bleachers. He wasn't playing basketball not because he didn't like the game, not because he couldn't play the game. He wasn't playing the game because he couldn't walk. The other boys and girls would have loved to have him play, but he couldn't walk. He would have loved to play, but he couldn't walk. He was born with the disease, a disease that had stricken his legs. He would never be able to walk. The money for the surgeries that was needed that might help him one day to walk and run up and down a basketball court, there was none. And that pastor's wife saw that little boy. She learned about the situation and she said to herself, I'm going to mobilize my husband's church to get behind this little guy. We're going to get him the surgeries he needs. It doesn't matter how many. It doesn't matter how much. One day, I'm going to watch him with my own eyes run up and down a basketball court and play ball. And for ten years, she kept her word. Church raised tens of thousands of dollars. That little boy, once a year, went to a medical facility and the surgeons there operated on his legs. When he reached age 16, ten surgeries Hundreds of thousands of dollars spent. He came up to that pastor's wife and he said, Let me show you what I can do. He got a basketball. Down he went. Up and down the court he went. And she just wept. Glory to God. Well, her husband got relocated and She lost contact with the young boy, the teenage boy. Seven or eight years went by before she would hear of him again. You know what he was doing when she heard? I probably, you're thinking, he's a bank president. Or he's an elected official. Or he's a CEO of a big company. Or maybe he's a coach. Or maybe he's in the military. Or maybe he's a police officer. Certainly, he's doing well. You know where he was at? He was on death row. Convicted of three murders. In an attempted robbery to buy money for a cocaine habit he had. You know what the pastor's wife said when she heard that? Parents and grandparents, put your ears on. She said, I taught him and helped him 
to run up and down a basketball court. But I never helped him walk with Jesus. Sometimes we as parents and grandparents are so busy making sure our children get this and that in the things of this world that we never teach them how to have the things of the world to come. What are some things we can do to start rebuilding the walls? Well, the first thing we can do is request God's help, number one. I want you to look at verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 4 because all of our principles will come out of the Bible. Notice he says in verse 4, this is Nehemiah now. He says, hear, O our God. Now this is a prayer. Nehemiah is calling on the Lord God to come into the situation he's facing with the agitators and the anxieties. He's calling upon the name of the Lord and saying, Lord, I can't do this. I want you to come and help me. What Nehemiah is doing, ladies and gentlemen, is practicing Jeremiah 33.3. If you don't know this verse, you need to know it. You need to cut it out. You need to put it in your Bible. And you need to put it to practice. What does it say? Call upon the Lord and He will answer you. And He will come and show you great and mighty things you could never know. He will come and do for you great and mighty things you could never do. That word call means invite. Invite the Lord. He doesn't come where He's not wanted. But when you invite Him, He will come. Invite the Lord into your situation, circumstance of your family. When He comes, He will bring with Him wisdom that you can understand things you don't understand now. He will come and bring with Him power to do things that you can't do, but He can. The problem is, we call upon everybody else but the Lord. We call upon the psychologist, the sociologist, the psychiatrist, the pastor, the policeman, the judge, the medical doctor, and we wonder why we can't get nowhere. We go here, we go there, we go over here, we go over there. We keep the roads hot going to every single place, but instead of going to the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, the problems that our families and homes are facing are greater than anything we can do. We need the power. We need the wisdom of God with us. Two ladies were talking about how they met their husbands. And one told how she met her husband. And then the other said, well, I met my husband at a travel agency. He was the last resort. <laughs> Some of us look at the Lord as the last resort. He should be first, but we make Him last. We call on Him just as we're about to fall away. Oh, wouldn't we call on Him sooner? 
Request God's help. I don't know where you're at in this rebuilding project of your family and home. Maybe you haven't even started. But wouldn't it be wonderful to say, God, bring your wisdom and power and join me? Secondly, we need to rally the family. If you notice in verse 13, Nehemiah says to them, I will set the people after their families. You know what he's saying? Up until now, I've had all the families integrated, working together. The Palmer family, the Wilson family, the Knight family, they've all been kind of mixed up, working together over here. He says, I'm changing that strategy. The Palmer family's over here. Jim, get your family together, mobilize them. You're going to build and you're going to battle right here. Keith, get your family right here. You're going to build right here. You're going to battle right here. This is your family. Take ownership and leadership in them. Sam, you get your family over here. Do the same thing. Nehemiah broke up it all into family units. He understood that blood should be thicker than water. And he said, listen, if you fear that your family's in trouble, then y'all come together and build and battle together. That's what families do. They come together in a crisis. And they ought to work together and stand together and pray together. And we don't do that anymore. We carry the burdens alone. We don't want to inconvenience anybody. We don't want to bother anybody. We don't want to bug anybody. And the burdens crush us. Many hands make a job easier, particularly when those hands are the hands of your own family. So Nehemiah rallies the families together. When's the last time you had a family conference over a situation or circumstance concerning a son that's wayward, a daughter that's wild? When, do we do that anymore? If the effectual fervent prayers of one righteous person availeth much, what would a whole family do? we got to call the family together. You say, my children don't know how to pray. Have you ever gave them a chance? My daughters are not spiritual. Have you ever asked them to be? Crisis has a way of molding and defining people. And when the family's in crisis, you bring the family together. You mobilize them to build and to battle, to stand and to fight together. Our military, I don't know if it's a written code or an unwritten code. Maybe some of our military men would know, but basically it's nobody left behind. If we go in with a hundred, we're coming back with a hundred. We're not leaving anybody alive or dead. They're all coming back. And that's the way we need to have a mentality as a family. We're not leaving anybody behind. We're all going to heaven and we're getting everybody there. And we're going to work together to make it happen. Request God's help. Rally your family. Thirdly, remember God's power. Look at verse 14. He reminds them, he says, the Lord is great and mighty. 
You don't have to be afraid of whatever you're facing in your family. For the Lord is great and mighty. In other words, the Lord has power. We talked about that earlier. And when that power is invited in, that power can do a great work from the inside out. When we're in crisis, we forget God's power, don't we? You know, last time I checked, he's still the God who parted the Red Sea. He's still the God that brought down the walls of Jericho. He's still the God that turned the lions into pillars for Daniel to get some sleep. He's still the God that fed millions of people Three meals a day for 40 years in the wilderness. He's still the God that slayed Goliath to protect the little shepherd boy. He's still the God who in the beginning spoke everything into creation. He didn't muddy his hands. He just said, let it be, and it was. And he's still the God that one day is going to dispose of the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And he'll do it by just speaking a word. That's the kind of God we serve. And yet we make him so small, we make him so impotent, because we don't believe he really can. He is able, but we doubt it. He's willing, but we don't ask. Nehemiah says to them, Bring God's power into this. Heard the story about a mother who prayed for her little boy to be saved one day and walk with God. She died at age six. That little boy became motherless and he also became fatherless because his dad was a sailor and never came home. When that little boy became 13 years of age, he decided he would be a sailor. So he left school, joined the maritime fleet of his day. And he became a sailor, and he did what sailors do. He was blasphemous. He was a drunkard. He practiced every form of sexual immorality known to man. He was an infidel. His mind, his heart was black as soot. His soul was as dark as a desert at midnight. And as bad as he was, he got worse. Because he found that he could make a fortune selling people. Like cattle for gold. But a mother had prayed for him. And though she was gone, her prayers had been bottled up by God. Though she had died, God wasn't dead. Though she had died, the promises of God were not dead. Though she had died, the power of God was not dead. And God in His sovereignty uncorked those prayers of that praying mother who believed that the power of God could do anything. And God saved that man. A miraculous salvation. So much, in fact, that he left being a sailor, became a songwriter, became a preacher. 
And today, the most beloved song in the Baptist hymnal, or any hymnal, is his song of testimony. John Newton, Amazing Grace. The power of God, let us remember it. Let's rally our families. Let's work together as a team. Let's request God's help. And then lastly, and I'm through, let's reclaim our families. You say, Pastor, my family's already been swallowed. No, they've not. Take out the knife and cut the serpent's head off and pull them out. Pastor, my family's halfway swallowed. Take out your knife and cut the serpent's head out and pull them out. We can reclaim our families. We can bring back that wayward son. We can bring back that troubled daughter. We can bring back that dropout daddy. We can bring back that missing mom. We can do something with that selfish grandparent or that sinister grandchild. We can do something for that hobo husband or that wandering wife. We have a remedy. And his name is Jesus Christ. Fight for your family. Isn't that what he says? Look at verse 14. Nehemiah Miles says, Fight for your brethren. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Are they not worth fighting for? Fight for your houses or your homes. Don't forget. Don't forsake. Get out on your knees and pray. Pursue them. They may not want to speak to you, but you speak to them. They may not want to keep in contact with you, but you contact them. Stay close to them. Don't let them get too far. Do your best to keep some type of contact as you pray for them. You pursue them, and then you participate with them as we're trying to reclaim them. It doesn't mean that you agree with who they are. It doesn't mean you agree with what they've done or where they're at or what they're doing. But you've got to be close to them. You've got to be involved when you can with them or you'll never get them back. Let them know that you love them and it's unconditional love and you're never going away. And one day... Down here or up there, you'll get word that God did it. But we got to fight. The flabby days are over. We need men to stand up in their homes and rally the forces. We need families on their knees praying for the situations and circumstances that are swallowing before our eyes. Now is the time. This is a fight we cannot lose. Because if we lose it, not only are we going to go down, those that we love will go down with us. Heads are bowed and eyes are bowed.